now arriving, the Let's Talk Train Show. All in the Eastern Time Zone, and it's time to listen to the Let's Talk Train Show. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My guest today is T.J. Gaffney. We're going to be discussing a few historical res- preservation projects that he is involved in. So stay tuned. Join us and help us make the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation better than ever. Your membership will help us further enhance our exhibits and attractions in north-central Missouri, including the Let's Talk Train Show. Our goal is to set up a museum dedicated to passenger rail history, including Amtrak, located in La Plata, Missouri. Memberships and contributions from friends like you will help us achieve this goal. For more information about the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation, membership, and opportunities available, visit our website, www.aprhf.org. And we have our first caller. It is the amazing Chris Ginsler, and good morning, Chris. How are you today? Good morning. Just on my Metrolink train, working on getting my 1,458,000 mile by the end of the trip when I go back down to Oceanside and back today. Oh, very good. Yes, and of course we have the NRHS convention coming up here in about a month and a half now, and it's going to be a lot of fun in Colorado, I think. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. I wish, yeah. I, I wish I were going, but I know Elizabeth yes. is going to be joining you, and all of you are going to be having a wonderful time for that week. Oh, yes, she will, and we will all have a good time. Of course, I'm going to be doing everything I possibly can each day back there, shooting people, mm-hmm. steam engine. My goal is to shoot every steam engine in the state of Colorado. So we'll see if I complete that. I uh, can't remember right off the top of my head if there are any steam engines on display in the northern part of the state. uh, Well, according to my books, books I've been using and website information, there's three of the Great Western Little Engines on the highway out to North Platte from Denver. And then there's a bunch up in the Colorado Rockies west of Denver. And then, of course, various places along the Santa Fe, there are a couple. And then, of course, the last one we'll hit will be the one in Trinidad, the one I've already shot. But I found the uh, one in uh, Colorado Springs at the hotel. That took a little work to find it, but I found it. So it's going to be a good trip, I think. Yeah, it does sound Mm -hmm. like a good trip. 
All right. Yeah, but of course, uh, the Black Hills Central will be done, and I'm staying two nights at the Ponderosa Ranch on Crawford Hill, so that's going to be a lot of fun one too. So, all right, Bob, I'll let you get back to your show. Thanks for putting me on, and I guess Skip's doing uh, Saginaw next weekend, so I'll talk to him then. All right, very good. Take care now. Bye bye. All right, you too. Have a good trip. And that was the amazing Chris Ginsler giving us an update on uh, what's happening with his mileage and what his plans are for the National Railway Historical Society Convention here in about a month and a half. Uh, While we're waiting for a a minute or two, we have a couple of information items, but I think I can hold that off because we have our guest joining us. This is T.J. Gaffney, who is... Quite the preservationist. And hello, TJ, and welcome to the Let's Talk Train Show. How are you doing, Bob? I'm doing well. How about you? Very good, very good. I'm glad to hear that. So my first question that we always start the show with is, how did you get interested in trains? Uh, Near as I can remember, the earliest memories I have are... uh, associated with uh, the the Grand Trunk here locally in my hometown of Port Huron. Uh, I can remember uh, going with my mom and watching the old uh, Grand Trunk Western uh, GP9s uh, switch out the Dunn paper plant um, uh, to the kind of the north end of town. And uh, we used to park along the waterfront there and, and watch them do their do their switch jobs, um, and I, I can remember that distinctly. I can also remember um, my, my uh, godfather's family owned a short line railroad in the area known as the Port Huron in Detroit and uh, spent a lot of time out there as a kid. Uh, you know, this is, this is before the days of, uh, of uh, major concerns of legal and insurance and other things, but... Uh, I was very fortunate to get to know fellow, uh, several railroaders out there who have, uh, quite frankly, remained lifelong friends. So, uh, I know I, that's sound. That's quite about how I got interested in railroads. We had a couple of neighbors uh, living down the street from us when I was living in the suburbs of Chicago, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Yep, <laughs> and uh, got like you, got to know several railroaders, and, and like you, they they have been lifelong friends. And it's it's really been some experiences and some friendships that I have cherished tremendously. Well, I, I completely agree. I, uh, you know, and, and ultimately um, it's, it's led to some opportunities and experiences that I, I never, uh, <laughs> quite frankly, never would have dreamed of when I was younger, but... Uh, <laughs> but I guess we'll talk about that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I know that feeling well, tremendously well. There's um, several opportunities that I had in the Chicago area um, through through some of those connections and through a couple of other connections that got me into areas that and, and got me, or I was able to do things that, quite honestly, most people, even including myself, never even dreamed of. And what an experience. What some experiences yes. we've had. Yeah. yeah. Well, can you tell us about some of those? 
Um, you know, early on, uh, I, I got to, uh, you know, and it, it's one of those things that is, I'm sure you, you had as well when you're younger, you don't necessarily understand what you're experiencing at the time, but boy, do you appreciate it later. Um, the, the, the PH and D was an all Elko powered railroad. Um, we had, uh, three switchers. Uh, there was an Elko S1, an S2, and an S4 that was an XB&O unit. And, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, I got to ride in the, the cab several different times um, during their local switch jobs. Um, Charlie Bren, uh, Brennan, uh, who's still with us today, he's, he's in his very late 80s now, um, you know, would, would allow me to, to, to get up there and ride and I think kind of understood uh, – you know, the interest level I had and, and, uh, the guys there were always very, very friendly. Um, same thing, quite frankly, and, and I'm sure CN management would, would not love to hear this today, but, uh, <laughs> with some of the, the folks at the GT at the time, uh, the old good track road as we used to love to call it. Um, you know, the engineers, it, it was a different time, uh, sadly, because, you know, they, they would rather, and, and I've talked to a few of the guys, sense and and i think their attitude in my opinion was the correct one that they would rather have the kids you know where a where they could see them (laughs) in 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 b uh if there really was an interest level there you know uh have them asking them the questions and in in being up and around rather than taking a chance that you know some something could happen in terms of an accident if they didn't and uh you know, like I said, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I rode on some of those old 44, 4400 and 4900 series GP9s, you know, a few feet here and there um, over the years and and uh, very, very thankful for it. Um, and, and a lot of those guys, and again, particularly on the Grand Trunk because they operated steam so late, um, would talk about running and at the time I didn't know what they were talking about of course I mean I knew that they were talking about steam engines but you know they'd roll out oh the 6300s or 6400s and oh can you remember going through this and that and man those things would pick up and go and you know and uh you know just being around those guys was uh was just it, it was neat um you know and and I guess in a certain level you have to have a kid who has enough of an interest to to pay attention. Um, but on the same token, you know, the, those guys are just fascinating to me. I mean, they were larger than life, uh, and, uh, you know, personality wise and everything else, but they just, they were, and, um, you know, I, I'm forever, forever grateful that they, uh, that they did that. Um, you know, otherwise experiences that I, I got to have very early on, you know, uh, uh, trips down to the Henry Ford Museum uh, a little bit later on over to the Huckleberry Railroad in Flint. Um, those are probably some of my earliest experiences with, with steam locomotives uh, operating. Um, uh, there was a little 060 steam engine in Marysville Park, which is still there today, uh, a little Baldwin that you know I played around on it as a kid. So if I think about it, it, it was a combination of things that uh, – I got a chance to do, you know, I can remember, I can remember reading things in, in trains magazine and, and, you know, uh, at that point it would have been rail fan, not rail fan and railroad, but, um, 
in, in reading about, again, larger-than-life mythical figures like Doyle McCormick and, you know, uh, Ross Rowland and, and guys like that who, you know, you never never in your mind's eye would think. And, and uh, you know, speaking of those things that ultimately ended up happening, you know, at, at, at one point, you know, we finally I got a chance to to meet Doyle and Ross and, and several others. And, again, that's just – it was the, those opportunities that – that uh, I, I was able to afford um, uh, that, uh, like I said, I'm very, very thankful I got to do. So, Now, you mentioned earlier you're talking about as, as growing up as a kid and, and, and in, in a different time that the railroaders that you got to know and talk to and a similar experience with me, they preferred having the people around where they could see them. And, and one of yeah. the things I've noticed is that, that attitude, at least on the part of railroaders, really hasn't changed that much. You know, no, the operating it people. It seems to be the management that is is um, that is scared to death of everything. Yes, and, and I would I would tend to agree with that too. And, and you know, <laughs> having been in management situations um, and, and knowing sadly the reality of today's world when it comes to uh to lawsuits and and all kinds of different things i can sadly understand where they're coming from um oh yeah you just you you just don't and can't take the chances and and the sad part about it is back then we never would have thought of it and i'm sure those railroaders never would have thought about that as taking a chance if anything like like we've talked about they would have seen that as a very positive thing um, you know, and, and unfortunately, uh, it is, um, it is turned into something now where management has been forced to look at literally everybody on the property as a potential trespasser or someone that could do damage to equipment or, uh, or liability, uh, slash lawsuit in the making. And, uh, and unfortunately it's, 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 an, it's the world that we have come to agree with, but I, but I would tend to agree with you. Um, several of the railroaders that I have talked and worked with, um, I would say, feel the same way. Um, obviously, they can't be as open about it, and, and they have to be, you know, mindful of, of the situations of today. But yeah, I would tend to agree with you. They, they, for the most part, most railroaders still uh, enjoy. Um, talking with kids and, and, uh, and what have you. So mm-hmm. how much, how much of this experience of uh, this early experience and, and, and that, um, was influential in getting your job with Conrail or was that something that was entirely different or interrelated or how did that come about? I guess that, that was interrelated. Um, and, and it came about late admittedly. Um, I've been employed, uh, been employed at Conrail just shy of two years now. Um, I'm, uh, I'm in the car department, uh, uh, car inspector, mechanical as we call it now. Um, and it did come, if, if I'm honest, uh, through some of the connections and, and things that I've done over time, um, just in the sense that uh, I, I uh, was able to get to know some of the other people that worked there and an and opportunity arose to be employed there. And so I was, I guess you could say I had a little bit of a leg up from that standpoint, but, you know, that only goes so far. Uh, in today's corporate structure, you know, you, 
um, it, it might get you uh, to the uh, initial process, I guess you could say, but it really doesn't push you through per se. It, 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 it's still your experience, your knowledge, what have you. Um, my uh, the the um, the experience I had actually in Heritage Rail, uh, as I would call it, uh, you know, working in and around museums, uh, Heritage Railways, is what ultimately led to that job, um, which may seem very ironic to, to fellow railroaders out there because, you know, usually <laughs> a lot of times, you know, though there, there's an attitude, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard the term foamer. Um, there, there's an attitude oh, yeah. of those that are rail buffs or, or work in and around equipment, you know, historic equipment are not necessarily always <laughs> viewed in the kindest light by fellow railroaders. But in the same token, um, I, I can directly link my my knowledge and uh, in, in my the what was at least able to give me the baseline of information to work at Conrail from, from those experiences. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I was, I, I kind of kept the, um, uh, the work in, in heritage rail, uh, on the volunteer side for a long, long time. Uh, I had an opportunity. I had opportunities at a couple different places, uh, to volunteer. Uh, and that always, you know, it's always a great experience. And again, um, you know, in, in those cases, older adult mentors, uh, were always very helpful or tended to be, you know, you always, you always said those that were <laughs> a bit gruff, uh, but, uh, for the most part, you know, they, they were willing to impart information. And, uh, you know, there are things quite frankly, that I think you pick up via literal osmosis when you're in the environment. Um, but, uh, particularly, you know, the stress on safety, the, the stress on, um, you know, there is a, a knowledge base here that you have to learn, um, the tricks of the trade, the basics, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that's things that I definitely picked up through there. Um, you know, I went to, uh, I, uh, went to Denison university in Ohio, um, for my undergraduate, uh, and, uh, had originally gone with the idea somewhat ironically of, of going to law school and uh, really had always had an interest in history as a whole and had a couple of professors who um, steered me in the direction, well, maybe you might look at having history or preservation be a career. And um, at, at times I'm not sure whether to blame them for that or to, uh, to thank <laughs> them for that. But, uh, and, and Bob, I know you know what I'm talking about there. Uh, but uh, it, yes, it, I do. Uh, um, one one of those was a, a gentleman. Uh, one of the gentlemen I got to know, uh, who was ironically kind of the tech guy at the, the library there at Denison, was a, a, a guy by the name of Roger Card. Um, Roger was a uh, had, had worked for the, the post office for a number of years, and then had come to Denison as kind of a second career but had grown up in the lower part of Michigan along and in, in for those that are knowledgeable about uh, old railroad monikers along the old road, which would be the former Lake shore and Michigan Southern uh, predecessor to the New York central. And he'd grown up outside of a little town called reading. 
and uh, Reading was probably the closest town of any size would be Hillsdale. But he had grown up uh, uh, kind of hanging around the Hillsdale Roundhouse, and uh, same is what we talked about. Uh, you know, he got to hop rides on Mohawks and Hudsons, and, you know, obviously I was endlessly jealous. Um, but yeah. he... Uh, he he uh, he and some family members uh, were able to actually lease from uh, the NYC back in the early 60s a small branch line that went through his town, and they would actually run a little motor car up and down it and what have you. And uh, um, he got to know a lot of fellow railroaders and, and had just a, an unbelievable railroadiana collection, station signs, and everything else you could have, and all the paperwork that went with it, um, you know. And and so when I got to meet him, um, Roger, uh, Roger had uh, uh, kind of introduced me to to some of the folks that were in Ohio, where he had moved along the old, ironically, also New York Central, the old uh, Toledo and Ohio Central eastern leg uh, that came down out of Toledo and, and uh, eventually down through Cyrus and some other towns that way. And uh, I would go rail fanning with them, and, and that allowed me to meet a whole other group of people that I never would have met. Um, I, uh, I ended up getting into uh, the old Alexis Tower in Toledo, and uh, you know, this would have been early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and, and again, um, those those guys would allow me to come in there and, and watch the old interlocking tower, you know, there at Alexis. And uh, I'd often, on the way home, spend a couple more hours than probably I had intended uh, hanging out with guys like that. And so I'd, I'd pick up information that way. And um, ultimately, when I graduated from Denison, there was a gentleman who I, I'm sure several of your listeners have heard of at least the name, uh, H. Roger Grant. Um, who had just recently become head of the department at Clemson University. And uh, he had long been at Akron in Ohio and uh, had moved down there. He was the author of several different books and very, very well-respected railroad historian. Um, and uh, I, I guess you could say uh, one of my – Roger knew him and, and a couple other of my professors at Denison knew him. And so I, I guess you could say I followed Dr. Grant down to Clemson where another uh, historian, uh, Dr. Richard Saunders, uh, who's wrote uh, kind of a, a bio-epic about mergers in the 20, 20th century uh, of railroads, mergers in the coming of Conrail, and then uh, rail lines and merging lines, et cetera. And he, uh, he uh, really, um, the two of them kind of took me under their wing for the next couple of years and uh, introduced me to several people in the Lexington group, um, uh, which again is another transportation, very influential transportation history group, uh, and uh, got to meet guys like George Houghton and several others, and I guess all of them kind of influenced me um, to to keep going. I, I didn't end up going on for a doctorate. I, I finished with my master's. There were some, as it, it happens in life, there were some things that happened. My father had a pair of strokes and had some family members that had some other health issues, so I I came back to this region and uh, a position at the Port Huron Museum here opened up. And, and uh, if you could hold on to that thought for just a moment. Sure. Because we do need to take a break. 
And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Okay. This is the Association of American Railroads Audio Service with a report on the way the nation's freight railroads are building for the future. As the economy grows, so does the need to move raw materials, industrial products, and consumer goods. The vital link in that chain is provided by the nation's freight railroads. And they've taken a look ahead and determined they need to invest more than $160 billion over the next 20 years to carry their share of the load. That's in addition to the more than $200 billion it will cost to maintain the system. The good news is that railroads are already investing record sums, more than $6.6 billion, or almost 20% of revenues in 1999. That's a higher percentage of revenues put into capital improvements than any other industry in America. Railroad officials think they'll be able to increase those investments thanks to the Staggers Rail Act of 1980, which freed them to compete in the market against each other and against trucks and barges. They say that law has already resulted in improved productivity, lower prices to customers, and more investment. Building on that, railroads are confident they will be able to keep up with the economy's need for even more freight transportation in the future. For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington. Only Donner Rails brings you exclusive railroad action entertainment, giving viewers the best seat in the house as they ride with crews of expedited freight trains over the Sierra Nevada. Check out some of our hot new titles on DVD, like Cab Ride Over Donner Pass. That's good, 97, stop and stretch. See how train concepts are constructed in the famed Roseville Rail Yard. Then climb aboard an EMD SD-60 freight heading east over the mighty Sierra Nevada. When severe winter storms hit the Sierra Nevada's dumping up to 35 feet of snow, look out. Here comes the flanger. Every time you go up and you're on that flanger and you can't see the end of the engine, it will raise the hair on the back of your neck. Catch a ride with the Flanders Night Crew in Winter Rails Over Donner. See many other titles by visiting our website at www.donnerrails.com. And we're back. This is the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, May the 21st. We are live, so if you would like to join us, the call-in number is area code 646-716-7106. I'm your host, Bob Alkire. And my guest today is T.J. Gaffney, who is a preservation expert uh, in the Michigan area, uh, well-known in the Michigan area, I might add. Now, as we left for commercial break, you were talking about having had the opportunity to meet with several distinguished people, among them H. Roger Grant and George Hilton, and be involved with the Lexington Transportation Group when you return to the Port Huron area. So is that how you got your interest in the um, historic preservation? Um, you know, historic preservation was something I was always raised with. Um, my, my dad, uh, who since passed, uh, was uh, a former treasurer for the Historical Society of Michigan and uh, uh, a collector of historic postcards and memorabilia from the area and uh, just, a, just a general lover of history. And uh, whether I knew it at the time or not, I, I, I think that kind of passed down to me. Um, he always considered history an important um, an important thing um, 
he he fought for its preservation where he could. Um, and for those of us that have, have been in historic preservation, you always seem to lose more battles than you win. But uh, uh, he uh, he he truly believed that uh, not only can you learn from the past, but um, you really can't truly understand the time frame you live in and, and in essence what's coming at you in the future if you don't have a basis in the past. And, and I, I feel very fortunate for that because uh, as I've come to realize over time, not everybody has that. And uh, uh, ultimately, as, as we were saying before I left for break, that led me into the museum field along with, you know, as we were talking about with uh, Dr. Saunders and Dr. Grant, um, you know, I, I was able to take the curator position here at the Port Huron Museum uh, early in 2000 and uh, uh, was there for about six years and, and got to experience some, some great things there, working some amazing exhibits. I, I, uh, I won't go too far into this, but I'm also very into maritime history. And uh, there, there was ample opportunity for... Uh, to work in both sides of that field, transportation field uh, at the museum. I, I, uh, I was hired by a, a, a gentleman who was a very long-standing and very well-respected historian uh, and director in our area, Stephen Williams. Um, and uh, Steve again imparted a great deal to me. Uh, you know the the wonderful world of writing grants and uh, uh, getting to understand. Uh, <laughs> The, the inner workings of dealing in the nonprofit world, which um, is is an experience and a knowledge set all of its own, uh, separate from uh, the things that we've discussed with railroading. But uh, um, we, we got to do some amazing exhibits. Uh, we got to work with some great folks. Uh, in turn, you know, I was able to work with some colleagues at that time um, and, and got to meet some great folks. Uh, uh, Dave Sutter, uh, who uh, worked until very, very recently at the Henry Ford Museum, uh, the Roundhouse there. Uh, uh, Jason Johnson, uh, who at the time was working with the Ohio Central Railroad, uh, who in turn basically was the reason I, I volunteered there for a period of time with uh, Jerry, Jerry Joe Jacobson's group uh, when he still owned Ohio Central Railroad. Uh, and... Uh, just countless others. Paul Deleska, who is still the head at the, the Henry, or at the, pardon me, at, uh, at the Huckleberry Railroad. Uh, so, like I, like I said, it, it really uh, allowed me to, to get to meet some more folks in the field and, and uh, some folks that have become, quite frankly, lifelong friends. So, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, it was a great opportunity and one that ultimately led to uh, my time at the Steam Railroading Institute. So, but, uh, but, and and uh, with Pierre Marquette 1225, as, as most people know <laughs> about that place. So. Yes. Yeah, we were um, we were there for I think the very first running of their Polar Express. Okay. And have been back a couple of times. Have been very impressed with the work they have done. And I was just curious how much how much of an influence have you had over that. Uh, at the time that you were there, and basically ongoing. Oh wow! Um, 
I guess that would be a question better asked to the volunteers that, that were there. Um, I, I'd like to think I had some influence in the time I was there. Um, uh, I, gosh knows, I, I worked with some great folks and, and continue to know some great folks there. Um, you know, uh, again, um, the the opportunities that I had when I was director there, I hired on in December of 2006. Um, and as you pointed out, uh, they, they had been running the Polar Express trips for a couple of years prior to that. And uh, uh, now, now the North Pole Express trips is, is there known there. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I should note, 1225, if I'm very honest, is, is probably my favorite big engine out there. Um, you know, I, I grew up, uh, I was about 10 years old when they got her running again out of a Owasso. And uh, SRI at that point was still Project 1225 or the Michigan State Trust. And, uh, you know, it was a handful of very dedicated folks you know, many of them dating them all the way back to when the engine was on Michigan State's university's campus in East Lansing, um, who had stayed with it and, and kept up with the engine and eventually moved it over to the former Ann Arbor Railroad back shop in Owasso, uh, and then spent a few more years until she was restored. Um, and, uh, you know, folks, uh, Folks that, again, are in the community, you know, uh, some of the early people involved in that have, have gone on to their own success, uh, probably one of the biggest of which is Kevin Keith, of course, uh, who just recently retired as the head of the Kalmbach Publishing Company and was former editor of Trains. Um, you know, he started out with, with 1225. Um, mm -hmm. There's several others I could point to as well. But uh, I, uh, you know, I, I like to think we had a... Uh, 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 we put a good mark on it. Um, we we did some of the very first photo charters that that engine had ever done with uh, John Kraft and, and the Historic Transportation Preservation Group, um, guys like Mike Allen and, and others. And then uh, at the time, he was just starting out, but one who has become kind of a, a forerunner now in the, the photo charters, uh, Peter Lero. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, the opportunity to do those charters was amazing. You know, we got to work with historic equipment and, and as, uh, you know, I'll throw, I'll throw this back a bit, uh, you know, throw back the, uh, the way back machine with, uh, Mr. Sherman and Peabody, Mr. Peabody, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know, get to get to experience what it was like, you know, circa 1945 or 50 or what have you. And, uh, that was, that was a lot of fun. I know we had a lot of great times, um, at the time that I came in to SRI, um, there's another guy that probably is somewhat known to your your listenership, uh, Barney Gramling. Um, Barney was our chief mechanical officer at the time, and uh, Barney's probably best known for uh, uh, he now has a TV show uh, with his father, uh, uh, basically Half Tank Engine Will Travel. And uh, he's the one that restored uh, Flag Hole 75 and then uh, Lehigh uh, 126. And uh, Barney, um, Barney's, a, Barney's a character, great guy, uh, fellow railroader, um, had, had similar experiences that got him into railway preservation. He'd been, Barney's been everything from an Amtrak engineer to uh, 
a volunteer at the Little River Railroad uh, and had worked as a locomotive uh, mechanical guy for uh, Rail America at one point as well. So, you know, it, 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 I, I guess, uh, you know, we, we had some good times there. And then uh, when Barney left to, to basically um, take the tank engines full-time, <laughs> as we would say, um, <laughs> and, and take them out on the road, Greg Udoff, uh, became our chief mechanical officer, and, and Greg, um, uh, at the time, younger guy, but uh, uh, amazing, uh, amazing guy, Eagle Scout, um, really, uh, really believed in, believes in, um, you know, bringing the most that he can out of a steam locomotive mechanically, um, and uh uh, he has since gone on to some pretty amazing heights. In fact, he's he's now the head of the Texas State Railroad. Uh, so, uh, you know, like I said, uh, hopefully we've we've had some positive impact there. Um, probably the most exciting event we did while I was there was Train Festival 2009. Um, I talked earlier about getting a chance to to meet Doyle. That's that's where I got the chance. Um, I I. Uh, I never, never, ever would have thought we would have brought 4449 across country, um, let alone to Michigan. Um, but, uh, you know, they say things things happen in weird and strange ways, and I'm, I'm convinced part of the reason we were able to make that happen was somewhat ironically the downturn of 2008-09, which allowed for some capacity that I don't know would have, would have been there, say, today um, when we brought it across on BNSF and uh, – um, you know, we had close to 40,000 people in Owasso over, uh, over about four days, and uh, it, it was great. It, it was the first time that three large Lima-built steam locomotives had been back together, um, probably since the, the age of steam, um, and uh, two of those being Lima Berkshires, of course, 765 and 1225, and, and of course, 4449 and 1225 had both been built literally within months of each other uh, in 1941. So we had sort of, as we jokingly call it, the class of 41 reunion. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we had uh, quite a, quite a operation there. We were able to do some great site improvements. Uh, we put a, um, in large part to, to work by a gentleman named Ken and, 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 Greg Udoff's dad, Mike, uh, put in a seven and a half inch gauge live steam railway on site, um, restored several freight cars, uh, uh, improved the grounds greatly there, and uh, really, I feel we're able to take the grounds from kind of a, I'm not going to call it a scrap here, but it had it had elements there in, uh, and converted into something that the public, quite frankly, could come to and um, uh, was an you know could be an enjoyable experience and that proved very important uh, when 1225 went down for her 15 year because although the North Pole Express, Express trips at those that time had to be hauled by diesel the fact that all those site improvements had been done um, really uh, allowed them to grow the experience of having more people and, and the site become a bigger part of uh, the mission uh, for Steam Railroading Institute. And I think, uh, you know, that I, I'm, I'm still very, very proud of that. I think the, uh, the development of that site over time, uh, especially in the last, 
wow decade <laughs> um has, uh, it's been pretty pretty fantastic and uh and they they have taken what we did when i was there um and, and greg and barney were there and, and, and barney has come back somewhat as a volunteer and and the current cmo uh kevin mayer and uh tim springstorf who's the who has my my old position uh have really taken it another step forward and so i i think they uh you know, I, I do talk with them uh, here and there and uh, have some great, great friends and volunteers that I met and uh, and love to, to talk to. But, uh, you know, don't get over there nearly as much as I used to. So, but. Okay. Well, we are at a point where we need to take another break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes, and then I'd like to have you talk about uh, your company and Streamline Historic Services and how that got sure. started and that's that what okay, that okay. is involved with. Okay. We'll be back in a couple. Yep. Join us and help us make the American Passenger <clears throat> Rail Heritage Foundation better than ever. Your membership will help us further enhance our exhibits and attractions in north central Missouri, including the Let's Talk Train Show. Our goal is to set up a museum dedicated to passenger rail history, including Amtrak, located in La Plata, Missouri. Memberships and contributions from friends like you will help us achieve this goal. For more information about the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation, membership, and opportunities available, visit our website, www.aprhf.org. Are you tired of having to click and click and click to watch train videos on the web? Well, why don't you do what I did and give your fingers a break? TheRailChannel.com has great shows every week. They show contemporary and vintage programs that focus on real railroading and model railroads. If it runs on rails, I'm sure you'll find it on the Rail Channel. The programs are updated every Monday, and best of all, you can sit and watch it in full screen with only one click. Head on over to TheRailChannel.com right now. That's all one word, TheRailChannel.com. Watch it. Operation Lifesaver presents a 60-second lesson in common sense. Deodorant is not a shower. It's wrong to feed a baby salsa. Don't wear a kilt on a windy day. Never ask a bride why she's wearing white. Don't keep mouthwash next to the antifreeze. Heave on hoe, not on heave. Don't sniff a green sausage. Close your mouth when you hang glide. Don't tap dance on the roof in an ice storm. Don't go swimming in leather pants. If you're in a parade, wave. Never eat a burrito before a road trip. Don't wear lace to a rodeo. One's a malt ball, one's a moth ball. Always walk with pie. Never practice nunchucks in a crowded room. Never leave a plant near the litter box. Don't buy sushi on sale. Flowers with thorns make lousy corsages. Don't put a knock-knock joke in a eulogy. Cherry chapstick doesn't taste as good as it smells. Always take your shirt off before you iron it. Do I look fat? The answer is no. And most importantly, never, ever, ever forget your common sense around railroad tracks. A train can come from any direction, on any track, at any time. A message from Operation Lifesaver. CommonSenseUseIt.com. And we're back. This is the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, May 21st, 2016. I am your host, Bob Alkire. We are live today, so if you would like to call in and join us with the conversation, the telephone number is area code 646-716-7106. My guest is T.J. Gaffney, a historic preservationist. We're talking about um, various historic projects that he had been involved in. And so we're starting out now. 
with your company. What led to the mm-hmm. formation of that? Well, uh, when I left uh, the Steam Rerouting Institute, um, you know, I'd been in the nonprofit world uh, for a little, little under 15 years, and if I consider, you know, my volunteer time probably closer to 20 to 25 at that point, and and I was still, I like to think it anyway, I'm still a fairly young guy with a young family, um, and as we've talked about, had some amazing opportunities and experiences and and what have you, but. Um, I really, what I found I really enjoyed was helping uh, other groups kind of reach reach their goals, and um, I, I I developed a skill set over time um, between writing grants, uh, between all the connections that I'd made over time, um, where uh, I I decided to kind of venture out on my own uh, and start streamline historic services and there's a little bit in that name um if you look at our logo uh for those that know railroad history um my logo is uh actually a uh grand trunk or or cn uh 6400 um and uh one of the streamline u4a or u4b depending on cn or gt um, and the streamline name comes actually from uh, the company that my grandfather worked for for most of uh, his life, uh, Mueller Brass. And they had a line of products at Mueller's called Streamline. And uh, I had uh, looked at the logo for that for a long period of time, and I, I thought it, it was fitting to what we were doing. And, and it also kind of denoted one of the things I think I've, I've become very good at, was, which is I like to to cut through <laughs> uh, some of the, the tape and, and the issues at hand and kind of get to the, the to the facts. Uh, some people say in Joe Friday <laughs> type of uh, <laughs> mentality, but, uh, but yeah, it, I, uh, th- that's how the name came about. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've had some opportunity to, since, since that happened, uh, we started the business in 20, in June of 2011 and uh, uh, had a chance to work with some great folks. Um, uh, did uh, a little bit of work uh, with uh, folks at TVRM uh, initially. That's actually what uh, what I guess you could say was one of my first impetuses for doing it was I've been asked to come down and, and talk with uh, them about some of the things that were ongoing at the time. And this was before the Norfolk Southern announcement was doing going on, and they were talking about the uh, the Volkswagen plan and the, the switching operation that they were trying to set up there. And uh, I kind of, after having a chance to experience that, uh, kind of said, "Well, let's take the next step." And uh, you know, kind of hung out my shingle, as they say. Um, but uh, um, I what what kind of grew out of that surprising to me was I got involved with a lot of private collection work and appraisal work. Um, I'm working on, for instance, right now, a very, very large uh, railroad lantern collection and uh, doing an appraisal of it. And uh, a lot of that growth has been word of mouth. Um, you know, it's, it's 
the collector talking to another collector um, or, you know, a museum that I've worked with uh, recommending, uh, you know, me for doing appraisal work, et cetera. I, I ultimately went back to a couple of the places I used to work to uh, the, the Port Huron Museum. We had done a project in uh, uh, the restoration of a historic military hospital. Uh, building that had actually been cut in two halves, believe it or not, and turned into a home. Uh, and uh, we, over the last uh, five or six years, we've actually put that back together and, and restored it as it was uh, when uh, when Michigan was actually the frontier or the West <laughs> in the uh, the sort of just pre-Civil War days. Um, worked with several. Uh, different groups that work on uh, historic lighthouses. Uh, that's that marine connection I talked about. And then in turn, uh, here and there, I've had an opportunity to to either consult with or work with. It doesn't, doesn't always turn into jobs, as they say, but uh, uh, like all consult, good consultants, I'm, I'm on the hunt, <laughs> constantly on the hunt. But, uh, yes. Um, you know, uh, some of the a couple of the operations uh, that you've heard of or, or larger locomotives uh, that have come out here recently, I've, I've talked to several of those groups too at times and or worked or helped with them. And uh, um, I, uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, leads to some, some other things, uh, namely, you know, concerns I have at times about, you know, the number of those that we have going on right now, but I digress. It's, I, I, I guess over time when you've been a director and, and you've been through the trenches, um, one of the very first words that comes to you um, is sustainability. And so very often I will ask my clients, you know, um, you know, the work that you're doing today and uh, the efforts that you are making towards, say, the restoration of a piece of rolling stock or a locomotive or whatever, well, how are you going to sustain that in the future? And Sadly, I, I get a lot of dumb looks <laughs> um, or, you know, well, we're, we're focused, we're focused on, you know, the restoration right now, you know, we'll think about that later. And ultimately, you know, later comes a lot quicker than people realize. And uh, particularly with steam locomotive projects um, and, and folks out there that have worked on them know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, the, the restoration of them is, is one thing, uh, and it's a very expensive thing, and particularly with a lot of the larger engines is, for instance, you know, uh, Norfolk and Western 611 here recently, um, you know, that was well over a million-dollar project. And uh, ultimately, you know, you have to ask, uh, when you're doing a project of that amount and that source, um, you know, A, do you have a place to run it? That's rather important. Um, B, um, you need to understand that the minute that engine comes back up, the clock is ticking by Federal Railroad Administration standards. And so, you know, the minute you light a fire and, and roll out with her that first trip, you know, the clock starts to, you know, ticking down for 15 years. Or if you're groups like, say, the Strasburg or even here locally, the, the Huckleberry Railroad, you know, you'll hit the number of steam operating days, which is 1,472, well before you hit that 15-year mark. And so, you know, you need to be thinking, okay, at the very least, you'll be needing to replace boiler tubes and flues. 
at the very basic. But of course, most operations when that happens in uh, 1225 here is a recent example, you know, also look at the other things they have to do. And so, you know, 1225 actually had its original 1941 firebox. And so they had to completely rebuild the firebox on 1225 at the same time. And, uh, you know, all those costs money and um, uh, take up time and a certain amount of expertise, obviously. Um, some some cases, you'd call it sort of uh, dying skill sets or, or skill sets that, that uh, aren't uh, as, as regular as they once were. Um, and, uh, you know, you pay for the knowledge there. And you, you also pay for you know, all the rising costs that come with it. And so, you know, what may be, say, a $250,000 tube and flu job today, 15 years from now, could easily be half a million or higher. And those are all things that, you know, I try to stress with, with clients. Um, and that that's just one subset example. But, you know, you need to always be aware of what's coming down the pike. And, and years fly past and, um, you know, uh, weather and rain and, and, and all that other stuff that you get to happily deal with means that, yep, you're going to be repainting that box car. Yep, you're going to be, you know, working on that building. Yep, you're going to be replacing that roof or what have you. And, uh, you know, those are all things that you really need to think of proactively. And uh, it, it's not something, and I, I think it largely comes from that, mentality that a lot of particularly historic rail preservation started with of we got to save the peace and that was obviously important i mean that was the 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 thing that you needed to do but it was it's happening with so many museums and i I think one of the more recent ones was the the recent mid-continent auction you know you have some unbelievably important pieces of equipment that are literally you know, uh, have reached a point where, unfortunately, museums have to make very, very tough decisions about whether or not they can afford to keep that equipment or, quite frankly, if that equipment, after having been saved, is just not savable. And, you know, that is a, you know, very, very tough decision and should not be a decision that should be taken lightly. But on the same token, you know, it, it goes back to that sense of sustainability. Um, you know, you have to have a strong mission. You have to understand, you know, what you're trying to do. But ultimately, you know, like I say, what I try to, to help a lot of these groups do is is focus in on, you know, what are your strengths? What are the things going? And, and then you get to the larger questions of um, what I lovingly put, refer to as collections rationalization of, you know, is there a piece of equipment that is not high on your radar that is deteriorating in your back 40 or on a, you know, a track behind other pieces of equipment that could be better served at another location or would be a premier piece at another museum? And those talks are, are beginning to happen. And I know, Bob, you've, you've seen several of the, the conversations that are going on right now within the community about those type of things. And I think it's very, very healthy, but it's also very painful because, in a lot of cases, you know, volunteers and members, you know, struggle to, to save these pieces in the first place, and they're not exactly, you know, real uh, interested in letting some of them go. But in, in some cases, you, you really have to, as much as you can, remove emotion out of it and say, what is best for the piece? 
um, or what is best for the institution. And it's a, it's a tough, tough, tough thing, but one that's that's really coming to the forefront, as I know you know. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, one of my questions then would be as a consultant, uh, how much do you work with these organizations to try to develop a plan for their equipment so that they can, as you say, rationalize what they have, keep um, and promote and restore, maybe kind of let some other items sit on the back 40 and, and then maybe ultimately somewhere down the road say, uh, we, don't, we don't need this piece anymore. It's so far gone. We can't save it. <clears throat> do you do much yeah. of that at all? Uh, I do, um, and I'm doing more of it, quite frankly. Um, and, and it's not just even with museums. It's even with private collectors. Um, you know, uh, there, there, there are those out there that have amassed, quite frankly, um, museum-worthy collections uh, of materials who, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the great, um, and, and quite frankly, before I go too much farther, and I know if there's friends I have out there listening, they're saying, yeah, you know, you're, you're an example of that, Gaff. Um, yeah, it, you know, I, I over, over the years, all? I, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we all have amassed collections of things, and <laughs> You know, again, that's a balancing act because the reason that we were able to tame several of those pieces is, of course, they were out in the quote-unquote open market. Um, but in some cases, you know, those pieces are rare enough and, and, and are important enough to the history of, of transportation in this country that they should be preserved and, and should be available for, for research and what have you. And, um, you know, uh, when a collector dies... Uh, or or gets to a point where they realize that they may not be here, uh, you know, as as my uh, as my grandmother used to say, none of us are getting out of here alive. Uh, you know, the reality of it is, uh, you know, it, it's a case of, uh, you know, you got to really think about what you're going to do, and uh, um, that goes for museums, it goes for private collectors, it goes for for all of us. Of you know, what ultimately do you see happening with some of the things and, and I unfortunately um, see several groups um, family members uh, you name it that there really wasn't a plan put together for the eventual disbursement or of the of a collection or of a um, uh, or as you said a, a plan for how to take care of it and uh, that really just does a you know, for, for an institution standpoint, and again, I guess this is the healthy part of the years I've put into the nonprofit world, I, I can look at it from a director or curator standpoint and say, you know, look, uh, you know, we've, we've had things donated to us that, um, you know, it's important, but on the same token, you know, um, you can't take everything uh, and you need to be very careful what you do take and what is uh you know, and that it reflects your mission. But on the same token, uh, you need to always be sort of arguing, you know, to, and justifying whether that piece ultimately is still serving that and still doing what it needs to do. And you know, is there a better location for it? Or from a collector's standpoint, you know, if it's a you know a more generic timetable, for instance, well, maybe you know your ultimate thing is is to put it up for auction and, and make that money available for 
for other things in your retirement or for your family going forward or what have you, or if it is something that's one of, truly, truly one of a kind, well, where's the best place to put it? And, and those are not easy decisions. They never really are. And, and um, they can be made easier by knowing, particularly in the private collector's standpoint, you know, what the wishes of that collector are. Um, you know, if they wanted a certain set of materials to go to a certain institution, get it down in writing. Um, make sure that your family is aware that that's what you ultimately want to happen. And and, and maybe this is also a commercial for, <laughs> in some ways, estate services. But, you know, the reality of it is, is all of us at some point in time will deal with that. And, you know, um, that's the thing that, that I, you know, I started out thinking Streamline was going to work in one direction and work solely with museums and historical societies and what have you. And, and more and more and more of my business has become, I guess the best way to describe it is the potential donors to those entities. Um, the, the ones that, you know, like, like both you and I are that are, you know, private collectors that, you know, whether our family members are going to want to be <laughs> collectors or not, they're going to ultimately have to deal in the aftermath of that if we don't do something. And, and so I, I tend to get more and more um, into that aspect with Streamline. And it's, uh, it's very sad and very disheartening to talk with several family members and widows who – you know, the the passion that we all have for collecting some of these materials, um, we sometimes forget that, you know, the, the family members don't always necessarily share that passion, number one, but number two, they don't have the knowledge base that we have about why those items are important to save and what have you. And so, you know, God forbid something happens, um, you know, they're left to try and deal with that aftermath and, um you know, not to sound like, you know, you're dealing with, you know, a volcano or something, but in some cases, yes. I mean, folks, you know, the, the baseline, as I tell collectors, is at the very least, the, the the best thing that you can do for your family is to keep a record of where you, where you got stuff and roughly what you purchased, um, because at least that gives them an idea of uh, sort of a baseline of value. And, and yes, as we all unfortunately know, there are unscrupulous individuals in this world who always aren't going to have your family members in their best interests. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, that gives them a baseline uh, to start with. And, and uh, you know, if, if you aren't, um, you know, if, you're, if your spouse, if your children, if what have you, don't necessarily sh share that same passion, well, you know, um, if you've got fellow collectors um, bring them in and, and let them know, you know, hey, um, you know, something happens to me. Um, can you, at the very least, make sure that they don't get taken, as I lovingly say. And, um, you know, that's, that happens a lot more, I'm very happy to say, now than uh, or, or a fair amount. Um, and okay. it's, it's part of the reason I get called in. But, yeah, yeah. And if you could hold that thought, I'd like to pursue that a little bit more, but we are at the top of the hour, and we do need to take a break. Okie doke. Now arriving, the Let's Talk Train Show. All aboard! 
And we're back. This is the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, May the 21st, 2016. My guest is rail historian or historic preservationist T.J. Gaffney. We are talking about historic preservation from the rail aspect today. We are live, and if you would like to call in and join us, the telephone number is area code 646-716-7106. And if I can get my cat to move, <laughs> we can uh, continue on here. Now, we've, you've been talking about your, your company, Streamline Historical Ser- or Historic Services, and some of the consulting you do. And sadly, as you've kind of touched on here and there, one of the things that we as historians and we as collectors have to deal with is family members who have no clue what the um, <laughs> what the collection is all about. So when you talk to people uh, about their collections, you mentioned you bring in, talk to them about bringing in other historians to make their wishes known. You've mentioned uh, getting things in writing and making it known, but... Sadly, we have lost so much because that is not the case that has happened. So how do you talk to those collectors and get their family members and relatives involved so that they know what to do after after the person passes? Well, you know, and again, as as I sort of jokingly said earlier, um, maybe this is an advertisement in some ways for – for estate planning as much as anything, but, um, you know, it's something that you don't think of until unfortunately you have to think about it. Um, and, uh, for for me, uh, quite frankly, I had to deal with it a lot earlier than life than most do. I, my, my father passed away at a very early age at 58. Um, and, and his father had passed somewhat early as well due to some complications from his service in World War II. And, uh, and so in, in both cases, um, in, not to be uh, macabre or gruesome, but my, my father uh, always made me very, very aware of uh, what ultimately he felt should happen with this collection. Um, and, and again, I did not necessarily collect what my father did. I, I have kept several items from his collection, but I have also found other places for some of it. And, and that was because he was very frank and open with me about what he felt about those things. And, but again, a lot of people don't have sort of, I mean, to be, to be honest, I'm, I'm very glad of that fact. It's never easy, obviously, but, um, don't have those in-your-face sort of moments uh, that, that kind of force you to deal with those things uh, in, until it's literally too late. And so I would say the, the, the first way to do that is, you know, when you begin to think about ultimately what you want to have happen <clears throat> as you do your, your ultimate estate planning going forward, and, and, and I can never argue, I, I, I tell people you can never do that early enough, Um you know, uh, you need to think about all those aspects. And, and, you know, if you have kids, obviously you need to to make sure that they're taken care of or, uh, you know, just as you would look at things like life insurance, on the same token, if you value the time and effort and uh, the hundreds of hours that many of us have put into building 
some of the collections that we have, taking you know some additional hours to think ultimately, okay, what am I what 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 am I going to have happen, or what would I wish to have happen uh, with this stuff after I pass, and then in beginning to have those conversations with your loved ones, and I would say with trusted fellow collectors because ultimately. Um, you know, uh, and I, I've been involved in these type of situations, um, as well, uh, you know, having to deal with the disbursement of collections of friends, um, that, you know, your family members will very often lean on, on your friends that have that knowledge in, uh, um, you know, ultimately, it's it's uh, uh, you know, while it's a very tough thing, uh, it's the the ultimate thing of a friend that you can think of when you know another friend asks you, hey, you know, I, I want to make sure that my stuff and my family are taken care of, and that you know they get some value out of out of the time that we've put in here. Um, you know, can you help them with? pricing these things or putting, you know, helping these things go to auction. And then ultimately, you know, folks like myself who come in and, and are able to, to help with that. I, a lot of what I do is not glamorous to, to many people. It's, it's the cataloging of items. It's, um, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what did this sell for that sell for, or to get a baseline value of things. And, and, um, uh, sadly, I've had the business long enough now that some of my, one of my early clients, at least that I can think of, that I dealt with, I've actually now gone back uh, because they passed, and the widow basically told me point blank, you know, she says we can, I can never thank you enough for the work that that you did with my husband to get this here. She says because at least I know, and I and I would say she was a, a bit more knowledgeable. Uh, in her case about uh, his collection than some, but uh, she said, you know, uh, she has a baseline of knowledge and literally a book uh, that she can say, okay, this is where the items are. And as I tell people, you can always take less. <laughs> um, but if you have an idea of, of what a market rate is and, and, and then, you know, the next step is keeping it up to date um, is all of us in the collectibles field know you know, 2008 to 10 really hit the collectibles, particularly the rare Rodiana collectibles market hard. Um, you know, lanterns, for instance, I'll take one category that I get brought in for a lot. Uh, railroad lanterns, you know, lost a, probably two-thirds of their value during that period. Um, now they have recovered quite a bit, in my opinion, um, and, and from the research that I've done and experienced. But you know, there are those fluctuations. And so I would also, t you know, tell family members, even when you have those, that collection listed, you, you need to be uh, quote unquote real. You, you need to understand that just like an antique stealer or, or anybody else, um, the, the number that you may have listed can fluctuate, but at least you've got a number or you've got an idea. And it, it's peace of mind ultimately um, for your family. Uh, in 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 some ways for you, um, not to get spiritual here, but you know there there is that aspect to it, and uh, you know for 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 those of us out there that have put several years of our lives into collecting these items, you know ultimately you'd like to think that maybe something survives you, and 
in 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 particular that at the very least your family can benefit from some of the the work that you have done because as many of us know uh some of these items you know are, are priceless obviously from a historical standpoint but the, they also have a hefty price tag on them as well and and you want to make sure that if if you aren't there to 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 benefit from the sale of that that hopefully your family is and uh you know that's you know, like I say, it's the stuff no one really wants to talk about, but it, it, it's a very real and very everyday, quite frankly, um, thing uh, for those of us that, that, that love uh, love trains and love collecting this stuff. It, it's something that we have to ultimately look at. So, mm-hmm. yep. Yes, we do. And I'm fortunate because my wife is a rail fan, so I don't have to worry about disposing of my collection <laughs> after I pass on. But after yeah, she passes are. on, then it becomes a whole different ball game. That's that's exactly right. You know, as my wife says, she says I know way more about trains than I ever hoped to. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, tongue in cheek, of course. But yeah, yeah, I I hear you. It's uh, and you know. Um, the generation of the what I would lovingly refer to as the first great collectors, and, and I, I would say that's the World War II generation, um, the ones that you know literally grabbed the headlights and the bells and, and that from you know the, the, the literally the scrap line, um, are are quite frankly dying in record numbers every day, and, and within a decade we're not going to have them. And so now we're all ultimately down to, you know, the baby boomer generation and, and their collecting. And in each generation that comes down, uh, the amount of collectors, I think, I get into this argument a lot, whether the numbers actually go down or just what the desire of that generation is changes from a previous generation, just because it's what they know. Um, you know, I, I never would have in my mind's eye ever thought that, you know, a builder's plate from an SD40 would excite passion in anybody. But I can tell you that there are those who are now in their late teens, early 20s that would happily have one of those in their collection. So, you know, um, and the same, you know, I'm sure baby boomers and, and World War II generation guys would have felt the same way, you know, about that for, you know, GP9 plates and, and things like that in my generation. So, um uh, you know, it's just a matter of um, understanding that, you know, things do fluctuate, but certain things will always hold their value. And it's because, quite frankly, they're irreplaceable. So, um, you know, it's it's like any collectibles area. It's something that, that fluctuates, but um, there is a marketplace for it. And in some ways, I would argue, a larger marketplace than there's ever been, thanks to eBay's and online auctions and um you know, you can you have a much larger, for lack of a better term, competition base than you've ever had uh, for that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so. Is, <clears throat> excuse me. How is the the internet uh, and play auction places like eBay and uh, Craigslist and that? How is that driving the market? Is it driving it up, driving it down? I mean, I've seen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've seen such a great 
fluctuation in pricing on some of the books I've owned, and I'm sitting there going, geez, how do I value, how do I come up with a reasonable value for this? Yeah, and, and, and it can be tough. Um, you know, it, and the answer is it, it goes both ways. Um, you know, uh, for those of us that started in the era when you got most of the stuff through going to antique shops, uh, traditional auctions or railroad shows. Um, you know, uh, it used to be you'd save up your money and, uh, you know, attend one of those events and sort of, in essence, buy in bulk that day or, or, or what have you uh, in yeah. anticipation of that. And, and now, as I lovingly say, what eBay and all those sites have created is more of an instant gratification situation where, you know, when I started collecting the Pierre Marquette, for instance, and, and admittedly, I was an oddity in my generation for that. Um, you know, I, I would save up stuff for timetables and lanterns and various and sort of, you know, things um, and go to a railroad show. And I might see if I was lucky, you know, five or six items uh, from the PM in that, you know, time frame. Whereas now, you know, I can bring up an eBay search Pierre Marquette and literally have over a hundred items and those change regularly um, to the point where, you know, what was tougher to find in that particular collecting area 15 years ago is not as tough to find now. And so, yes, the, the availability factor has definitely affected value, I would argue, in some ways in the negative. But that being said, the amount of bidders for that same item has now literally quadrupled or quintupled in terms of when you put something up on eBay, you now know you literally have thousands of people that are looking at it versus, you know, 10 or 20 at a railroad show or 100 if you're really lucky, but you know what I'm saying. And so the potential buyer aspect has then spread. Um, where you see the giant jumps in positive price are the irreplaceables, as I lovingly say. Um, the headlights from a specific class of locomotive, uh, the builder's plates in particular. Builder's plates have skyrocketed, in, in, and probably of all the railroad collectibles in the 2008-2010 downturn, weathered that storm probably better than any of the collectibles out there. Um, Because, again, there were usually only two of them. (laughs) Um, And, you know, yes, there are fakes out there, and yes, we've all seen where groups have made, you know, uh, have made duplicates, and and hopefully when they've made, you know, those available for fundraising efforts, they have indicated that fact somewhere on the plate, hint, hint, hint. But the reality of it is, is um, you know, uh, there, in almost every case, there are only two of those. So, you know, if, if you want a builder's plate for a nickel plate Berkshire, you know, there are only so many opportunities out there to get them. And obviously not all the builder's plates were saved off of every nickel plate Berkshire. So, you know, then it narrows down. And, um, you know, it, it gets even more so when you get into things like, even more passionate things, you know, New York Central Hudson's or Penzi T1s or, you know, uh, Union Pacific Big Boy number plates. That's another one. Wow, it's 
and the prices for those yeah. are, are unbelievable. You know that that those are the kind of things. There were only you know twenty five of those, so there you go. You know, um, it's it's uh, it, it always you know collecting always comes down to first and foremost how many of them were in there in the first place and the availability of those that were out there. And so, you know, if there were only so many out there in the first place, then that's obviously going to drive demand. Um, but uh, but where it, where it's hurt. I would say are things like timetables, things like, you know, uh, things like uh, some paperwork, uh, things of that nature. Um, uh, Lanterns, the more generic sort of Adelaide 250s, 300s, you know, your New York Centrals, your Pennsylvanias, the one, you know, ones that there were literally thousands of them made uh, versus say, you know, an embossed, Paul Globe, uh, Adams, or Armsphere, or some of the earlier lanterns, or the conductor's lanterns, you know, the green over over clears of uh, the pre-1900 era, you know, those will always retain their value. I, I don't care, you know, if, if most of the railroad Indiana collectors out there aren't there 50 years from now, I guarantee you those will still have some sort of value just for their you know, the, the fact of, of how rare they were in the first place. But, you know, uh, it, it's the, the more generic run-of-the-mill things that you would have paid more at a, at a hobbyist or, or a memorabilia show, say at St. Charles or one of the larger shows, 15 years ago because you just wouldn't have seen them in the numbers that you do now. Those have all dropped to the point where, you know, a timetable that might have been 10 15 $20 might be as little as 5 now. Um, you know, or 10 or what have you. So that's where it gets a little tougher to judge. Um, so I'd like to ask you about pricing and what drives the market in various and sundry areas, but we need to take a break and we'll be right back. All right. This is the Association of American Railroads audio service. And today we're reporting on the early days of America's railroads. When the first railroads began operating in the United States in 1830, the entire nation had a population of a little less than 13 million people. Most of them lived in communities or on farms huddled near the Atlantic coast or along navigable rivers that fed into it. Inland there were great natural resources, good land for farming, forests enough to provide shelter for millions, mineral wealth beyond imagination. But those resources were largely untapped. In fact, the entire region west of the Mississippi River had a population less than that of today's Richmond, Virginia. The railroad would change all of that. As tracks were laid west from the Atlantic, new towns sprang up. Industry and commerce developed. Agricultural production increased. Mountains, rivers, distance, These were no longer insurmountable barriers to trade and travel. Railroads conquered them all and in the process helped transform the United States from an agrarian society into a mighty industrial giant that spanned an entire continent. For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington.
The Plate of Missouri, toll free, 888-814-3669. And we're back with the Let's Talk with the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, May 21st, 2016. I am your host, Bob Alkire. We are live today with T.J. Gaffney, and we're discussing historic preservation. If you would like to join us, the telephone number is area code 646-716-7106. You've been talking, we've been talking about pricing and valuation, and one of the things that amazes me is that pricing seems to depend upon the area where you're located. I grew up in Chicago, but I currently live in the Pacific Northwest. So when my wife and I go to train shows, of course, I'm always looking for Chicago stuff, I am just amazed at the pricing. I mean, I can find stuff for like 50 to 75 to 80, 90% less than what I would find it in the Chicago area. My wife, right. on the other hand, who connect, collects Canadian Railroad Eana, we're finding because Vancouver is so close with a couple of the railroad shows that they hold there, she's paying premium prices. And I, mm-hmm. I, that's always fascinated me. And I was wondering, is that how much that affects? Does that, you, I'm, I'm sorry. Do you see that same effect in your area in Michigan? Almost definitely. Most definitely. Um, you know, uh, Western Railroad materials, uh, Southern Pacific, Union Pacific, Santa Fe, for instance, going to Northern, uh, those don't sell as well here or you're able to obtain them for lesser prices than you would, say, a Grand Trunk or Chesapeake in Ohio or, uh, you know, even going into the modern stuff, uh, uh, Conrail or other items of that nature. Um and in a particular region, even as you get more regionalized, say, for instance, uh, some of the smaller railroads, uh, even our own port here in Detroit here, um, uh, the, the amount of people that are interested in it definitely uh, grow depending on the region that it was in. Um, you know, where, where you get really crazy with that are like the main two-footer guys, you know, in, in New England or... Um, the, uh, you know, some of the, the, the southern lines I found, because I lived, as I said, I, I went to Clemson, I lived in South Carolina and the Carolinas, and, and you know, some of, some of the lines down there in particular, uh, people get very, very passionate about that stuff. And so, yeah, you'll, you'll get mm, uh, values there tend to be higher regionally than they would be in, in other regions of the country. Let's, let's talk about some of the projects you're in, you are involved with, uh, either currently or previously. You've mentioned that one of the things you're working on right at the moment is restoring the Port Huron and Detroit yard office, as well as a couple yes. of pieces of equipment. So, what's involved in that, and what are you what are you doing? What's what is the project? Well, the project's all about. Well. Um, the, the, the Port Huron Detroit Yard Office, and actually I'm talking to you from it as we speak. Uh, the, uh, the PH&D Yard Office, um, the, the, the railroad itself uh, dates to about 1916 and uh, was a small uh, regional short line. Originally started out as a, uh, as a line that fed uh, industry here. 
uh, in the Port Huron area, uh, right along the border with Canada, of course. Uh, and uh, uh, we had several things, as you might expect, being in the state we're in, that, that fed the early auto industry. And uh, there was a, a group of uh, uh, pair of brothers known as the Handy Brothers of Bay City, Michigan, that had a small empire here in the uh, the Thumb region, as we call it. And if you know anybody from Michigan, and I'm guessing from the Chicago area, you do, you can always tell us because when you ask us where we're from, we immediately put up our hand and start pointing to different areas uh, But uh, <laughs> due to the shape of our state. But uh, the Handys uh, had a very large empire in the from about 1905 into the early 1920s that included railroads, uh, some earlier predecessors to the Grand Trunk that they sold. And they were uh, and would have referred to themselves in that era as quote-unquote capitalists. Uh, so they had their hands in all kinds of different things, uh, uh, sugar beet processing plants and different industry coal yards and what have you. Uh, and their... Uh, Part of this empire was the Port Huron in Detroit, which they then decided to extend uh, after they bought it down towards the Detroit area. And that, that's a story in and of itself that, that involves everything from a deal that they tried to make with Charles Hayes, who's the president of uh, the Grand Trunk Railroad, uh, to, to sell one of their early railroads to uh, him and if you know your history, Mr. Hayes happened to make the mistake of taking a certain ship called the Titanic back to Montreal and uh, didn't make it. Uh, so then they tried to work a deal with the Pennsylvania Railroad to build this railroad down to the Detroit area. And uh, the collapse of their sugar plants due to the Cuban sugar uh, pricing changes of the 1920s and then ultimately the Great Depression basically destroyed their empire. And so what ended up happening to our little railroad um, was that it was basically taken uh, for back payment to the Handy Brothers lawyer, James Duffy. And uh, Mr. Duffy uh, had two sons, uh, George and Jim Jr., and they basically ran the railroad. Uh, And basically the Duffy family then ran this railroad from roughly about 1925, 26, uh, until 1984 when it was sold to Chessie System or what was in the process of becoming CSX at that point. Um, And so the office building that we had here, uh, most of the major operations hub for this railroad, um, if you look out our windows, the Grand Trunk Western now Canadian National North America main line between Chicago and Montreal passes right outside our window. There's a multiple track yard. Back in the day, there was a about a 36-stall roundhouse, uh, car shops complex, and several other things over at Grand Trunk, which are sadly mostly gone now. And then here, uh, we interchanged with uh, what was originally the Pure Marquette and later the Chesapeake in Ohio. Uh, but all the buildings sit in literally what is a railroad Y. Um, and uh, the office building was on sort of one leg of the Y, and the roundhouse, which was about eight stalls, six to eight stalls, was on the uh, sort of the eastern leg of the Y, and uh, everything else that the 
railroad served went to the south, which included a oh everything from a, a couple of power plants of Detroit Edison uh, to later on propane tank car facilities. There was a Morton salt plant down here at one point. It was actually a remarkably diverse little railroad, um, nicknamed the Educated Line due to the the PH and D uh, at one point in time, but. Uh, uh, in 2008, a group of us who had connections to it, including members of, of the Duffy family, uh, the grandson actually of the original uh, uh, purchaser or owner, uh, James Duffy, uh, were able to acquire the office building structure here. And, and the ensuing 24 years had not been good to either structure. Uh, when we required, got the office building, which is a two-story structure roughly in the shape of a T. Um, the roof on one leg of the T was literally gone, uh, and part of the second floor had been damaged so badly that we eventually had to remove it and rebuild some of the floor trusses. Uh, it had been vandalized. Uh, you know, there was graffiti in it, et cetera. And uh, over the last few years, we have obviously first tried to take care of restoring the exterior, the envelope, which is in essence three buildings in one. Uh, the original structure was built in 1922. It was added on to in 1928 and then again in 1945. And so um, we had to literally replace the windows. There are uh, the old style leaded frame windows uh, that we replaced the glass in. Um, you know, we had to rerun electric and, and all this, I'm very proud to say was was done pretty much bootstrap. Um, as we jokingly tell a lot of our donors, um, you know, the five dollars you give us today, we'll buy a two by four tomorrow. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so it's, we, we we very literally uh, use every dollar. Um, but we you know we've we've had our struggles uh, beyond the building as well. Uh, the the railroad at one point had a former. C&O business car, the Richmond, um, that the family had purchased in the early 1970s and renamed the Castle Blaney. Uh, that had been given to the Gold Coast Museum in Florida. And unfortunately, after several hurricanes and other issues that they dealt with, um, they had decided the car no longer fit the collection. Um, you can see where some things are coming full circle from our earlier discussions, by the way. Um, yeah. And they had make the tough decision to let the car go. Now, to their credit, they did notify us. We were very, very much in our infancy. Um, we did start a fundraising campaign, and ultimately the car sold to a, a gentleman by the name of DeWitt Chapel, who is probably known in, in private car circles, but owns a beautiful car known as the Chapel Hill, another ex-Chesapeake and Ohio car. And he really wanted the the trucks that were underneath it because they were, they had been modified by uh, one of uh, the matriarchs of the family, Mrs. Duffy, who is 92 years old and still with us um, before it was donated uh, for Amtrak service. And so DeWitt tried to work with us. I, I have to state that um, really did try to work with us to try and save the car. Unfortunately, the condition of the car and the fact at the time that, um, for, for those that follow some of these things, um, CSX Transportation at the time um, had had some issues with 
people who had had private cars that had roller bearings, but they didn't have rotating end caps on the roller bearings. Um, uh, most Timken cars, for instance, have those. If you see them as they roll by, you can actually see the whole wheel hub roll. Well, there are certain roller bearings, uh, those made by the Hyatt Company, for instance, that you actually can't see that. They had had a couple of burned-up bearings and so decided to put a blanket statement out that they would not move a car that had non-rotating end caps. Unfortunately, Castle Blaney fell under that, and ultimately it led to its demise because we could not move the car out of Florida. Um, and so we raised some money. Uh, we had raised a, a fair amount of money, uh, and unfortunately the car was lost to the scrappers. But we decided instead, um, and, and again, this is one of those things we took back to our membership, to purchase one of the two surviving PH&D cabooses, which sits now outside our window here. Um, and... Uh, so, again, tough decisions, even for, quote, unquote, us little guys. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's been a struggle, but it's, it's been a, a very rewarding uh, one in the sense that, uh, you know, it's taken us some time to get to a point where, uh, where uh, we, we have a, a facility that we are now getting to the point of being proud to show to the public we had an open house here and had a, uh, well over 100 people come through, which we were very, very pleased to see. And as you probably see, we have a what I feel is a pretty remarkable following for for a, a little 16-mile railroad in, <laughs> in the thumb of Michigan uh, there on Facebook. But uh, um, our big struggle, and again, um, you know, I, I reiterate, I, I try not to, to put anybody in a bad light, but we. we we have had to, we were trying to save the roundhouse, which is literally a stone's throw from where I'm sitting right now, because as most of us know, they're in the rail preservation community, railroad roundhouses are getting to be a very, very rare thing indeed. And uh, this one here is uh, uh, an excellent uh, example of a small engine facility. And uh, sadly, it's, it's in dire need of repair. Uh, the roof has collapsed in certain areas, and, and unfortunately, vandalism has attacked a few of the glass block walls and, and things of that nature. And so, CSX actually still owns that, and we've been trying to negotiate with them. And, and the wheels uh, of corporate America turn slowly when you're a, a, a small <laughs> historic nonprofit that's not a customer, you know, sending large amounts of dollars across the rails and. And again, being a former manager, I understand that, and I understand the complexities of that. But unfortunately, you know, we we very painfully have to watch as the building continues to deteriorate over there. When we know we could we could very literally <laughs> start working on it tomorrow if given the opportunity. And so, you know, as I say, we all fight our battles. But uh, it uh, our hope is to turn a facility here into probably one of the the nicer small uh, example, uh, nicer examples of a small engine facility of the pre-Staggers Act era um, of a short line. And uh, remarkably, for as long as the railroad has now been gone, there are several pieces of equipment um, that still exist. Uh, we recently secured one of them, which is one of the two original Elko diesels that. Uh, that dieselized the railroad in 1945, uh, also S-152. Um, that is down in Knoxville right now at the Knoxville Locomotive Works, and, and those folks have been very generous and 
and, and uh, we were able to negotiate to save that. We're actually hoping to have it cosmetically restored here in the near future, and that's one of our other fundraising efforts is to bring it back up now that we own it uh, and have it on display here. So um, that's that's one of the bigger projects I've been involved in here rail-wise and in uh, um, one of the more rewarding ones, quite frankly. Um, so... I, I've seen on your Facebook fa- page that you've posted a few pictures of a um, a bridge in Port Huron. Yes. Um, yes. And is that are you trying are you working to try to save that or is that a project that is being considered for saving or is it just something that you're pointing yeah, out of that is a historical project? Uh, I guess the answer to all that would be yes. Uh, we there are a group of us that are try, trying to see it saved. It, it's uh, the structure you're referring to is one of the very few examples of an apt and apt being ABT design bascule railroad bridge uh, that was built by the Pierre Marquette Railway in 1931. Um, as a replacement structure, actually, for a structure that originally turned in the middle of, of the river there. Um, it was used until the early to mid-1970s uh, when the line from Port Huron to Croswell uh, was abandoned. And uh, it's become a navigational uh, icon as well as a historic icon in the community. Uh, the property was recently purchased by the Port Huron Yacht Club and, uh, about four years ago now. And uh, the Yacht Club uh, decided that they had no intention of saving the structure. And, and unfortunately, um, uh, we tried, there are several of us that tried to work with them on that, and, and uh, they were... They had not been interested in, in applied to the uh, Army Corps of Engineers for demolition permit. Well, any time a demolition permit of an historic structure happens with the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, the State Historic Preservation Office of the locality that it's within is brought in. And uh, uh, an HS-106, or Historic Site Survey, has to be completed. And several people... Um, basically wrote in uh, and told them how much uh, or how important they felt that structure was, including myself. And so the Army Corps of Engineers is currently evaluating uh, that demolition permit. Uh, that evaluation has gone on about three years now, <laughs> so it's been mm-hmm. quite the process. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're up for our last break of the time, so we will be back in a couple of minutes. Now available, 3D Train Stuff's new Donner Pass route, the High Sierra Crossing for Microsoft Train Simulator. This new add-on features a 90-mile segment of Southern Pacific's scenic overland route, which runs over the High Sierra Mountains between Colfax, California, and Truckee, California. And it's set back in the 1950s at the height of the steam and diesel transition period. Yes, now you can step back in time and learn firsthand what it took to get a heavy fruit block train over the hill from the engineer's seat of a big AC cab forward 
forward mallet or pull helper service duty with one of SB's famous 280 consolidations. Or maybe you prefer running an express mail train on a very tight schedule with some SP Black Widow Funnets. Yes, it's a blast from the past. To learn more about this exciting new product, please visit our website at www.3dtrainstuff.com or call us at 1-760-728-1787. That's 760-728-1787. 3D Train Stuff. It's more than just trains. Trainparty.com, the one-stop shopping center for all things trains and parties for kids of all ages. Trainparty.com is a complete resource for the train-themed party supplies, favors, toys, and gifts. Trainparty.com has over 700 railroad-related party items to choose from. Themes such as Amtrak Train, Little Chug Party, Whistle Stop Party, and many more make it simple to select a theme and get your party rolling down the rails. Items available include party wear, games, puzzles, balloons, piñatas, invitations, locomotive engineer costumes, hats, railway series children's books, train cake pans, cupcakes, etc. Don't forget now, trainparty.com on the web for any of your train-themed party needs from start to finish. It's the only place you need to go to get what you want and need. Check it out now, trainparty.com. And we're back with the Let's Talk Train show. We're heading into the final 15 minutes of the program. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My guest is T.J. Gaffney, and we're talking about historic preservation, specifically rail historic preservation. We are live today, so if you would like to join us, the telephone number is area code 646-716-7106. I'd like to ask you now, TJ, about a project that I've been following very, um, well, following with a relative degree of interest, probably more so than uh, maybe I'd like to admit, um, considering that I'm a Chicago area person. But that's the process of what's been going on with the Michigan Central Station in Detroit. Have you been following that yep. at all? And, and do you have any updates or is there any been any information more than what's kind of floating out there as rumors as to what's been happening yeah, with that? Uh, yeah, there, there, there's quite a bit happening with it right now. Um, and, and after many, many years, as, as I know you're aware, Bob, if you follow this, um, of, of the building being abandoned and vandalized and, and is, as some say, you know, the, the ultimate uh, example of, of the decline of Detroit, Um over the last really almost a year now, uh, there has been an amazing uh, renovation of the building that has begun, and, and, and I, I should note a, a fairly expensive one from what I understand. Um, for those who don't know, Michigan Central Station um, that Bob was talking about was one of the uh, premier stations in the Detroit area. It was the... Uh, uh, the main station for the, the very vast New York Central system in, in the state of Michigan. Uh, several name trains uh, ran out of there back in the day, everything from the Wabash Cannonball to, to the Mercury, of course, uh, which, which ran to, to your home area, of course, Bob, and, and, and others. And uh, um, 
the the old Twilight Limited went through there too, but uh, a, a giant structure um, that you could literally see anywhere uh, for for miles and uh, uh, remained a station structure. Uh, it was about 15 stories uh, and remained a station structure right up through the mid 1980s when Amtrak eventually abandoned the building and, and the New York Central successor Conrail uh, also moved its offices out of there. Um, it, uh, it then had a very slow decline uh, and, uh, you know, became very popular with the abandoned building set, <laughs> as they say. Um, and, uh, you know, it was sort of the urban, what they call urban exploration uh, groups love to go through it, you know, even, even, <laughs> even though most of the time it was illegally. Uh, the ownership became very difficult to follow, but ultimately the building became owned in the mid to late 90s by the Maroon Group, who locally owned the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario, and uh, have a very large real estate and uh, footprint in the city of Detroit, Southeast Michigan, and also have a very large trucking firm. And, and Maddie Maroon is the patriarch of that family in his 80s now, I believe. Um, Maddie was uh, uh, or is um, not a preservationist. I, I think that's a fair statement. I don't think I'm being insulting to say that. I'm not sure he would ever call himself that. Uh, he, he was very strictly a businessman uh, and bought Michigan Central basically so that he could improve the the footprint for his trucking firm and real estate firm, but also because there has been talk about building a second ambassador bridge and part of that right away would go through part of the property for Michigan central or the talk had been that that was the case. Maroon's son seems to have, and again, saying that he is a preservationist is probably strong as well, but uh, his son began to understand that, um, the negative publicity of the, the structure had reached a point where it was not helping them, and he began to realize that the positive nature of restoring the structure might help them in other ways. Um, and so they began to put price tags on things. And to, to help you understand just how bad the building had become, uh, it has literally four basement levels, three of which were flooded, um, and one of the problems was to do any sort of restoration is there was no active electricity or elevator in the building. And so it took them almost a year and a half of pumping out the basements to be able to get or establish a working elevator to, for instance, uh, be able to move windows back into the structure because literally every single window in the building had been blown out or destroyed. And as you can imagine, in a 15-story structure, that's a rather pricey tag. Um, interestingly enough, uh, one of the folks that got the bid for the windows is a gentleman I have worked with in the past uh, that lives here in St. Clair, Michigan, which is just to the south of where I'm talking to you now. And uh, it's a rather pricey thing. There, there's well over a million dollars into the, just the windows in Watching the windows go back into Michigan Central over last fall and winter um, was a very surreal thing. As you noted, I work for Conrail, and our Livernois yard 
is literally a hop, skip, and a jump from the old Michigan Central. And so literally every day you got to see more windows go in. And it became, uh, it has now become, whether intentional or not, a, a bit of uh, a symbol of the rebirth of Detroit in, in that particular area, which uh, is known as Corktown. Uh, and so uh, what ultimately is going to happen uh, is still up in the air, and, and the Maroon family has been very careful to say what they're going to do with it. Uh, the discussion has potentially been that it would return to at least partially an office structure. There, there has been some talk about potentially bringing trains back in there, but as, as you may be aware, Bob, part of the the complex behind the structure that originally led to the tracks was demolished due to the intermodal stack trains, uh, the need to move intermodal stack trains through that area. And so that would have to somehow be rebuilt or reestablished if they did ever say move Amtrak back in there or regional transportation in there. Um, but uh, there has been some talk and, and there has been quite a rebirth of this in the city of Detroit as a whole of, possibly making part of the structure into loss. It's important to note that the building was never full, even in its original life. Uh, the top two stories, from what I understand, were always storage. And so it was always kind of a, uh, you know, a building that was, that was built but never actually filled. And so uh, that being the case, uh, I think it's safe to say that whatever – will happen going forward will be a multi-use of the structure. Um, and uh, But it, it's very positive. Uh, it's lit up at night now, both inside and outside, um, whereas it was sort of this black, somewhat ominous, you know, uh, empty structure before. Uh, it stands out almost like a lighthouse now if you're coming in from Interstate 75 or Interstate 94 from from your home area, Bob, in Chicago, um, it, it really stands out against the night sky. Uh, and so, like I say, it's it's literally gone from an eyesore to a somewhat pleasing to the eye uh, element here in a matter of six months to a year. Um, so, but uh, we're all kind of anxiously waiting to see where they go next. Uh, but my, my guess is from the discussions that have been going on and what I've heard from uh, some historic preservation resources, uh, particularly the Michigan Historic Preservation Network, um, that uh, the, the Maroon family has been in discussions, is aware obviously of the historic nature of the structure and that uh, Maddie's son is willing to listen to several options going forward for what could happen with the structure, particularly given what's happening in the overall neighborhood around it. So. But uh, that's pretty much what I know right now. So, mm-hmm. Well, that's good to hear that at, at least something positive is finally happening with that building. Yes. Because I know yes. on my visits to Detroit, like you say, it was an eyesore. Yeah. There's no, there's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, way to put it. Yeah. And, and, you're and, right. And, and again, Bob, if, if you had uh, seen it recently, you would be very, very surprised knowing, knowing that. So. So. Well, like I said, that's good to hear. One other thing, 
we could cover in the few minutes we have remaining. There's been some proposals floated about for some commuter train restoration service uh, down there in southeast Michigan. Uh, anything? Yep. Is there anything happening with that? I know I've seen a lot of ex-Burlington uh, suburban bi-level cars parked there in Owasso. I know they've done a couple yep. of demonstration runs, but is that coming any closer to uh, becoming a reality? Uh, there seems to be some further movement. In fact, in uh, yesterday's paper, there was some talk about uh, doing commuter service from Detroit to Ann Arbor in particular. Uh, the, the commuter service or cars that you're talking about are actually owned through the Great Lakes Central Railway, which um, I uh, I was... Uh, had a chance to work with several times when I was at the Steam Railroading Institute. Uh, their lines, their former Ann Arbor Railway lines that went up to Cadillac were the route that we tended to operate on. Um, and, uh, in fact, I know they're going to be operating down there uh, towards one of the areas that they're hoping to do commuter service, which is uh, the, the, the Howell area. But, uh Yes, uh, there, there have been further discussions. Uh, the, the ultimate thing seems to be where is the money going to come from is, is seemingly is the discussion with everything in our wonderful state right now and, and, and um, how and who will manage the service ultimately. Um, the approximately 10 of those commuter cars, I believe, have been restored on some level or another. And so they do have, in essence, at least a full and potentially two full train sets uh, to do sort of test runs of those type of things. Um, and they have done some test runs on the Ann Arbor Howell to sections, but um, most of which, as you might suspect, uh, Ann Arbor being the home of the University of Michigan uh, with some connections with uh, the university. Um, but there have also been some interested parties. I know in the Jackson, Michigan area and some other areas uh, as far as potentially doing uh, commuter rail service. So it, it is a hot uh, hot topic right now. Uh, and uh, there is some equipment to potentially test out those uh, possibilities. So I guess I would say stay tuned. Uh, it's... Uh, there, there's definitely a growing interest here in mass transit. Um, the most uh, direct thing, though, right now is the Woodward Corridor coming out of Detroit. Uh, they're literally tearing up Woodward Avenue uh, and putting in rail for um, uh, for trolley uh, or uh, uh, service going towards uh, the new center area from downtown, which is a, about a three or four mile stretch uh, to begin sort of reinstituting uh, streetcar service uh, through that part of Detroit. And uh, the obvious intention is if it works to extend it out Woodward well to several other communities. The irony of course being that, you know, at one point in time, <laughs> We had interurbans that, <laughs> that did the same thing. But they say all 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 old ideas are new again at some point in time. But uh, um, but yeah, I, I can tell you from a fact that they have uh, 
they they are moving along on uh, on uh, that structure match transit, uh, and it's it's slowly moving up woodward. Uh, my guess is the quote unquote phase one should be probably ready to go within about a year and a half. So I know they've they're moving. Uh, they they finished one of the bigger hurdles, which was rebuilding the Woodward Bridge over Interstate 94, um, just because of the amount of traffic that literally flows through that, as they lovingly refer to, that sluice gate, uh, just past the Interstate 75 intersection. Um, and now that that's rebuilt, they've they've really been making pretty giant progress moving west. So. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you'll be hearing some test uh, test runs happening on the Woodward corridor pretty soon. I know it's it's already impacting real estate along that corridor. Um, uh, if, for people that know the Cleveland Cavaliers, the gentleman that owns that uh, owns Rock Financial, and I know he's very involved in a lot of the real estate in the, the Detroit corridor. So, yep. And one of the things about that, I remember as a as a youngster a couple of times visiting Detroit, Detroit, that it seems to me Woodward Avenue was like the premier mm-hmm. shopping district of the Detroit uh, city area. Yeah, it, it would be the Michigan Avenue of Chicago. Yeah, very much mm-hmm. so at one point in time, what it was. And, um, you know, what what is interesting about the rebirth of Detroit um, and I, I heard some commentary towards this by the Michigan Historic Preservation Network is the abandonment of some of these older structures, concrete structures, some of which, of course, have not survived. But the ones that have been abandoned um, basically, um, oh, CSX going by, uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> those, those structures basically um, – the fact that they were gutted was actually has turned out to be a somewhat positive thing because they aren't having to deal with older plumbing or other things. They can actually do brand new electric, brand new plumbing, you know, things that of course never were thought of when a lot of these buildings were built in the teens and twenties, which is, you know, internet service and all that stuff, all that can be run in what are these in essence gutted concrete shells. And that footprint is what has been the rebuilding of some of these historic structures. I know the book Cadillac Hotel uh, in Detroit, which was recently reopened about about a decade now, but uh, you know that building had been abandoned for well over 20 years. The former Woolitzer corporate headquarters, that's being rebuilt and redone into loft apartments with the same sort of footprint, and it's beginning to spill out onto the Woodward Corridor. It, it started in and around Grand Circus Park um, and uh, uh, has, has sort of peeled out from there now. And so it, it's definitely uh, definitive. And then, of course, the Illich family, the, the owners of Little Caesars Pizza and the Detroit Red Wings recently announced the uh, construction of a brand-new hockey arena, also partially on Woodward. Um, and the development of a whole complex around it. And so there's, there's, if, if you come to Detroit today, there is quite a bit of activity and a, a rather large amount of construction for a city that really hasn't seen that in probably 30 to 40 years. So, well, that's, 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 I'm glad to hear that because there is so much history in Detroit, in the Detroit area, uh, especially yes. being the 
essentially the automotive center of the United States, if not the world at one time. Yes, very much so, very much so. Well, we unfortunately, TJ, have run out of time. I have had, this has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed visiting with you, uh, getting your, your perspectives on historic preservation. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, hopefully uh, we can we can do this again sometime, and you can update us on what's been happening with the Roundhouse and some of the other projects you're involved in. That would be great, Bob. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. This has been the Let's Talk Train Show for Saturday, March or Saturday, May the twenty first, twenty sixteen. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My guest has been T.J. Gaffney. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.